You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing The Dogs of War, released February 13th, 1981. It was written by Gary DeVore and George Malko, based on a novel by Frederick Forsyth, directed by John Irvin, and released by United Artists. The title is a reference to a line from Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, Cry Havoc and Let Slip the Dogs of War. In 1974, Frederick Forsyth's The Dogs of War was published. While writing the novel, for research purposes, Forsyth spent time in Africa posing as the financier of a coup d'etat on Equatorial Guinea. What? Why would you want to pose as that? That seems dangerous. A ploy which won him access to mercenaries and arms dealers. Okay. He described them as the scariest people he'd ever met. Yeah, that seems like something I would not want to do for a book. Yeah, probably not. Producer John Wolfe, who had previously produced Day of the Jackal and The Odessa File from Forsyth's earlier books, hired Wendell Mays to adapt the novel to a screenplay. The project failed to gain traction. Don Siegel was brought on to direct briefly, but it seems like he is attached to every movie in 1980 (laughs) or 81 for a couple days. And he didn't stick around very long. Next, Norman Jewison, who has also been attached and then removed from several things uh, in our in our stay here on the podcast. He made an effort to get it off the ground with Abby Mann writing and Steve McQueen starring, but he was unhappy with the script and dropped out as director, sticking around to produce as George Malko did a rewrite. Nick Nolte and Clint Eastwood well, were wait, in. Wait, how would Steve McQueen have been in it? It was in 76 when he was oh, okay. attached. I was going to say, um, sir? Yeah. I, I, I could tell you why that didn't work out. <laughs> Nick Nolte and Clint Eastwood were in talks to star. And as we mentioned earlier, Michael Cimino was locked in to direct it until the disastrous critical response to 1980's Heaven's Gate. Oh, I would have liked to see that version of this. Yeah. I think that'd be fascinating. Um, I would hope that it was a different script. But uh, Jewison brought on first-time director John Irwin. And the novel involves Englishmen performing a coup in Africa, but for the film they switched them to Americans, and the film was shot entirely in Belize. We start with the title, Cry Havoc and Let Slip, dot dot dot, and then the title comes up, The Dogs of War. We start in the midst of a battle in Central America, 1980. A jeep full of men is racing to a plane on a runway to escape the country. Presumably this is... Uh, the previous coup that they were right. involved in. Sure. I, I, I have to say that the production value on all these, like, explosions. Right. Like, because they're not just big fireballs. They're just the the great big dirt explosions of, yeah, like, shells great. impacting. I was like, this movie has already blown through the budget of any, like, one of our films that we've seen so far. Well, John Irvin was predominantly a wartime documentarian prior mm. to this, mm. and he hadn't directed a feature film before, but since he had done all these wartime documentaries, he was very insistent on making things look as real as they did well, for things he was there it. for. Yeah, totally. Because And they're driving this Jeep fast. They are, like, yeah. It's, it's not like like close on to seem like it's driving fast. It's actually really driving fast down yeah. this road. One of the men on the Jeep, Jamie, seems practically unconscious and his friends are slapping him around to keep him awake. 
When they get to the plane, the man tells them that it is exclusively for members of the provisional government, and they threaten to kill however many men it takes to make room for themselves. A soldier on the plane, Drew, is sitting next to what looks like a dead man, uh, or maybe it's a comatose guy. Someone comes down the aisle and demands that this dead person be removed from the plane, but Drew pulls the pin on a grenade and puts it in the man's hand and says, He's alive, you pimp! The plane takes off without removing the quote-unquote dead man or his live grenade. Explosions erupt all around the rapidly ascending plane, but it survives takeoff, and we cut to the baptism of Richard Patrick Miller. Jamie Shannon, Christopher Walken's character in this film, is made the godfather of the child. Judging from the short conversation afterward with the baby's mother, it sounds like Jamie was in the war with her husband or performed this coup with her husband, but he deserted, and Walken made sure that he was able to return safely to America. It also sounds like Richard's no longer in the picture, whether he died or disappeared. His wife wishes that Walken had turned him in instead of bringing him home, and she doesn't intend to maintain a relationship with Walken beside him being the baby's godfather in accordance with Richard's wishes. We follow Walken as he enters an empty apartment. His empty apartment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's an important distinction. Yeah. And he grabs a beer out of the fridge, and the fridge has a gun in it. Yeah. So I was like, I was like, okay, you know, this this is this is surely a Chekhov's gun, but apparently it is not. <laughs> because... No, I think they're just showing how prepared he is for everything. Yeah. It reminded me, though, of a, a bit on Brooklyn Nine-Nine when uh, Andy Samberg finds a gun in the freezer. In the ice cream. In the ice cream. And he's like, I found this gun in the ice cream. I think he was using it as a spoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sure if uh, if he was prepared or messy. Yeah. Like, you you aren't quite sure at this point in the movie. Like I I mean guns are guns need to be oiled and I don't know how being in those kind of temperatures. I I don't think it's bad gun? for the gun. Yeah. I I honestly think the point was just to show that he's always prepared for everything. It keeps the bullets fresh, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's like batteries. You don't want to shoot somebody with a spoiled bullet. <laughs> just bounce right off. Or a warm battery. <laughs> yeah, Doesn't you really don't want sense. to shoot somebody with a warm battery. <laughs> He digs through a drawer and finds a pin with a picture of his godson's parents back when they were happy. What a weird Yeah, <laughs> what did, where did you make this? <laughs> why do you keep it? Why, why not just have a picture? Yeah. Why does it have to be on a button? I don't know. Yeah. Do I they think that run makes for sense. something? I have that kind of garbage like the, you know, somebody's wedding. Yeah, you wedding. and Christopher Walken's character in this movie <laughs> seem to have the exact same background. <laughs> It's like, oh, I have a photo of that somewhere. You just open this drawer full of buttons. Yeah, no, I'm just buttons saying. Buttons and like, guns. You get that. You get people make crappy mementos for like occasions where you're just like, I went to your wedding. Here's a magnet of me. And you're like, it just Thanks. doesn't seem like his type of thing. <laughs> but maybe it is. He sits down on the couch and turns on the TV to hear the tail end of a news story about a lady who writes songs for dogs. You send her a picture of your pet along with a biography and $75, and she'll send you a cassette, a musical portrait of your pooch. On the street later, two kids ask him for money. He offers instead to pay them to actually help him by carrying his groceries home. You can always be a beggar when you grow up. That night, Jamie gets a call from someone looking for someone named Endin, who Jamie claims not to know. The caller is speaking Spanish. There's a ring at the doorbell, and Jamie brings a gun to answer it. I was a little confused here because the phone sounded like a buzzer, yeah. and the buzzer sounded like a phone. <laughs> I don't know if the editor got the sound effects mixed up or if it's just a weird apartment. <laughs> I I was also confused. 
and and the reason I thought he was so nervous when he got up because I thought oh because if the phone they only back ri- again well no if the phone only rings one time that's the sign that's yeah. the signal yeah. I was like oh shit the phone only rang one time that's why he's freaking out so he's got to get out of there but um, no it's the buzzer it's actually the door but here's the here's what the phone sounds like and then here's what the buzzer sounds like I think those are backwards I think they actually just messed up in the edit. He seems to recognize the man at the door and asks how he got in here. The man seems to have a business deal involving hundreds of millions of dollars in some fake West African country called Zangaro. Jamie doesn't seem familiar with the country, so the man mentions Olu Kimba, the president who was apparently in the news a lot lately. Before money's invested in Zangaro, we have to know a lot more about the stability of Kimba's regime. Is a coup d'etat imminent or even possible? We have to know. The man offers Walken $10,000 to provide this information, even though he seems reluctant, and Jamie immediately counters with $15,000. So he's putting up a show of like, I don't want to do this. Okay, 15. Can I, can I get 15? It actually seems like a low amount of money to go into a well, country for a reconnaissance mission to me. But for $15,000, and he's literally just flying in, looking around, talking to some people, and flying out. He doesn't actually have to take a lot of action. Yeah, I don't know. I still think that you're you're poking around in places where people don't want you poking around, taking pictures and talking to people. Like, that's dangerous. So I you, think you, you, agree, you agree with N. Dean, or you, you agree with, with Walken that it's worth more money, and I'm, I'm N. Dean saying it's only a reconnaissance mission. Okay, yeah. I mean... What, like 1980s money is like three times right. you know, less than and he's also, nowadays money. But I, I'm just like, I don't think you could pay me whatever, $45,000 to go to a West African country and ask questions about a regime that no, wants to you're, kill me. It's just you're paying for the expertise. He's basically like a graphic designer. <laughs> you're paying for the education that he had, not just for the work that he's doing, right? But But also, I mean, I can't tell if this is a lot of money to him because you look at his apartment. And and I don't know if he's just squirreling all this money away, or I'm going to make uh, the assessment that he does not care about money. Okay, mm. he likes the job. Apparently, his plan is to pretend to be a bird watcher, and he buys a camera from his friend Terry. What do you know about bird watching? Ornithology. You don't stand right under them. He says he'll be gone for a week, but if he disappears, Terry and Drew need to come after him. Walking down the street, he sees the kid who carried his groceries again and asks if he has a godfather. That's the end of this interaction. I thought the kid was going to start following him or well, something. He comes but back well, he comes back later. Right, but for this one scene, I thought they were going to make it clearer that it's like, I'm taking you under my wing, come with me. Yeah. But uh, he doesn't for this scene. Uh, there, this is going to be one of my complaints with the movie is that this plot, the subplot is nothing, and it could have been removed. Yeah, or something could have been added to the end of the film to you know bring it back around. Mm-hmm. The money man and Dean doesn't seem excited about Jamie's cover story, but Jamie's not sure that it makes sense for him to just be a tourist because why would he go to Zangaro? What 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 is the point of going there as a tourist? It makes sense at least if there's birds that are Unique native to, to the region. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It seems like going in as a priest would have been the optimal. Oh, yeah, that might have worked. Maybe, but he wouldn't have an excuse to take pictures. That's true. On the plane ride out, Jamie memorizes birds from a bird-watching book. In Customs, we learn that he's going by the name Keith Brown for this visit. He says that he works for a nature magazine taking pictures of birds. 
Jamie is directed to a second office where they rifle through all of his luggage and camera equipment. The man finds cigarettes, liquor, and penthouse magazines in his luggage. I guess they're just trying to be like loaded up with stuff that could be considered illicit so that it's like, oh, you caught me. I thought he packed it intentionally to give customs as a bribe to let him in without hassle. Oh, is that what it was? Th- that, yeah, I, that's, I, I completely agree that he was he put those things in there intentionally for him to, to for them to take imagine if they didn't look through his luggage and he was just like sweet <laughs> <laughs> just gets drunk cigarettes for days well sorry guy, i forgot to take pictures the whole pack in his mouth <laughs> <laughs> when the guy was going through it though he did he you know it was like one for me one for you yeah one for me one for you <laughs> he's like are you an alcoholic and he said no i thought there was something wrong with the water here there is <laughs> he slides the bottle back over to him <laughs> The man from customs makes Jamie empty his pockets as well and takes half the cash he finds. Airport tax. Just outside the airport, Jamie sees there are no taxis, but a priest offers him a ride into town. On the way to the city of Clarence, they see a car crashed on the side of the road and a bunch of military police saying, nothing to see here. Like, somebody probably just got assassinated right there. He's dropped off at the Hotel Independence right on the shoreline. The man behind the counter is named Mr. Dexter. They don't seem to have his reservation here, so he has to rebook the room. I don't know if he had one in the first place and he was lying about it. Yeah. Or if they just don't keep good uh, track of things. They do make a point um, several times that, like, the the wire is down, like, the... Mm-hmm. the right, uh, the internet was bad or whatever. Yeah, the, Their the, Wi-Fi. The, internet, the Wi-Fi. No, yeah. the, like, the... I, I, but fax it, machine not fax machine what was it <laughs> well no i think it is i think you said the wire but also i like that the concept of that there's just a single wire a that single goes wire. just one wire going to the, it's it, just it, morris it provides code. information <laughs> and electricity at the same time if the lights blink that's you know yeah. you got a reservation the front desk asks for his passport intending to hold it for as long as he's here jamie takes pictures from his upstairs hotel room window as alarms blare outside The next morning, there's a Jeep and driver waiting for him outside the hotel. As they blast through town, the Jeep literally runs completely over a chicken, totally missing it as it passes through the wheels. I think you can see um, Christopher Walken, like, like stop and turn. Like, oh, to make sure the chicken got out. They hit a chicken. Like, he was surprised and he was checking if they, because I think the guy just, like, ran over the chicken like he didn't care. And Christopher Walken's like, uh, I I care. (laughs) (laughs) Free chicken, mate. Out in the middle of nowhere, his driver skids to the side of the road and gets out. Since he doesn't speak English, he just starts making bird sounds to indicate that birds are nearby. And Jamie seems annoyed with this game. The man talks the entire time they move through the jungle while Jamie gets his pictures of birds. Jamie ditches his guide as they move up a hill, and the guide turns around and starts to look for him. He seems panicked about losing him for a second, but then he walks back to the jeep and starts it up to drive away when he finds Jamie further down the road coming out of the trees. Yeah, this this caused, caused me to reflect back after, uh, later on in this movie. I was like, oh, I'm kind of wondering, was he actually really panicked that he lost this guy? Yeah, like um, he was supposed to keep track of him and he yeah. screwed up. Did, like, was he? That, that That's the question. I think the okay. implication I is thought, that- I thought you meant he wasn't. No, I, no think, I, I think that he is. I think I think he was. He the government put him in charge of. Right, following so he's this guy earnestly around. upset that yeah. he can't find him. Yeah, yep. yeah. Okay, that was my take too. But, but like, if you didn't injured. know that and you thought he was just a guide, you would think, man, this guy's really upset about having lost him in the jungle. Like he's obviously going to come back in a second. But it's like if someone's going to cut your hand off when you go back to the hotel without him, then it's a problem. Yeah. In my jungle, you'd be just another asshole. 
In town, we see military police arresting protesters, and a documentary crew are struggling to film it. The military police shove the entire camera crew into the hotel lobby against their will. We can't make a film about your bloody country from the hotel lobby! Can we, for Christ's sake? The angriest guy from the camera crew invites Jamie to join them for a beer. Another member of the crew is uh, Jim Broadbent. Yeah. But he doesn't say anything, really. Yeah. <laughs> he has like one line as he walks off. Right. And but, I, but it's also, I've never seen him skinnier. Yeah. A member of the local military visits them at the bar and offers a toast to President Kimba. He tells Jamie that President Kimba shares his interest in the native birds of Zangora. The man decides to test Jamie on his bird knowledge under the pretense of finding out the scientific name of the great-breasted grebe for the president. Maybe some other time. Christopher Walken starts to leave the room, and then he stops, and he says, Just for you. Podiceps. Cristatus. Right? And the storm petrum? Hydrobates. There's more. Pelagicus. Right? And what about the bubbling cystocola? The Esmeralda troglodytes? And there's my absolute favorite, and yours, Nectarina Famosa. Here's to him. God bless him. Like, he's like, that's how good I am at birds. That's how much I read this one book about <laughs> birds. Mm. In the lobby later, Jamie, as his Keith Brown character, is introduced to Miss Dexter, the daughter of the hotel owner. I thought it was his wife at first, but then later on, someone says it's the daughter. Evidently, she's been recommended as his guide for tomorrow. Well, there was also a line uh, when Christopher Walken comes back to the hotel. He complains to Mr. Dexter. says, that guide you got me isn't going to work out. And he says, I didn't hire that guy. Right. Yeah. That's like <laughs> that's like another like hint that like there's other stuff going yeah, on. Yeah. The person who took him out in the Jeep was not not from the hotel. Later that night, Jamie asks the filmmaker what they did to get yelled at by the military police. And the filmmaker says that they were trying to help a kid who was being arrested. And while he was struggling with the police, they stabbed him in the throat with a bayonet, killing him. The military police stole all the film from their cameras and shoved them back into the hotel. Apparently, Kimba recently won an election, and he was basically running against one other, like, general, like another military guy, and a doctor. And when he won the election, he exiled the general and imprisoned the doctor. The filmmaker takes a few guesses as to Jamie's real background, not buying the naturalist story, but Jamie doesn't spill the beans. Thanks for the drink. You are, are you? You are fucking CIA! The next day, Miss Dexter shows Jamie to Kimba's official residence. Apparently, he doesn't live here, though, because God told him that he should live with his soldiers, so he stays at the garrison. Jamie comes right out and tells the lady that she's crazy for staying here, but she reminds him that this isn't America, and she doesn't have a choice in what she does. She tells him Kimba is also the head of the church here, and that it caused an uproar for some time, but since they've added his name to the Lord's Prayer, some of the religious people who left are coming back. I don't know why that fixed anything for anyone. Yeah. So the religious people were being pushed out by him because he didn't want to be upstaged by God. But wouldn't there still be people to run the church? But she was saying that the other people started to come back. Like, why would they come back? Well, because he let them worship as long as they also worshipped him in addition to God. I thought when they left, she meant that they left the country. Not just that they went home. Well, I don't know where they left to, but whatever it is, they weren't they weren't holding services. Right, but I would I would expect that they wouldn't come back to this country to run a church there just because 
they changed part of the prayer. But who knows? Jamie takes a picture of Miss Dexter with the garrison in the background. It seems that she doesn't believe his cover story either and asks what he really does. He talks about how great birds are and that they're very smart because they migrate when things are going to change and they're in danger, calling her out again for staying in the country. They've been speaking late into the night when she has to take leave of him. We see Jamie in his room, putting on dark face paint and dressing like a ninja. He sneaks out and observes the guards around the president's residence and <laughs> and the garrison. Sorry. He's the president in residence. He's kind of in charge. He's got the whole world singing. That's my bush. Do you remember that show? Oh, yeah. That's my bush. Yeah. It was Trey Parker and Matt Stone's show about, it was a sitcom about President Bush in the White House. Is that a real show? Yeah, you the never world, watched that? Yeah. No. <laughs> it it premiered like the week that he became president because they had two shows set up depending on who won really? the election. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like them. His catchphrase on the show, it was it was a, a take on the honeymooners where they would say, he would say, bang, zoom right to the moon. Yeah. But then George Bush's version of it was, one of these days, Laura, I'm going to punch you in the <laughs> face. <laughs> He would say it once in every episode. When Jamie turns around here in the yard, one of the guards has a gun pointed at him. He manages to disarm this guy and I think kill him. Yeah, he definitely kills him. Um, and then he makes it back to his hotel room where he's waking up the following morning. There's netting strung up all around his bed to keep military police out, but they manage to tear it down from the <laughs> ceiling. <laughs> and then they start beating him with sticks until he wakes up. <laughs> The, mosquito, for, right? the mosquitoes in Zangaro are very dangerous. Yes. Uh, but yeah, they're beating him in bed, and then they continue to drag him to a prison. They set him down in a chair in a dark room under a solitary light bulb and splash him with big buckets of water, or maybe not water, and they begin interrogating him. Mr. Brown, what are you doing in Clarence? When Jamie refuses to answer the guard, they poke him with a syringe in his left arm. They show Jamie a picture that he took on his tour with Miss Dexter of the garrison where the president is staying, and he plays it off like he was just taking a picture of Miss Dexter because she's beautiful. We cut to sometime later where Jamie is curled up in the fetal position in the corner of a cell, and a doctor is sent in to clean his wounds. The doctor says an Englishman is here demanding to speak with him, and that they've filed a protest with the Swiss Council, so he's be he's being released today released and deported right while the doctor helps him jamie is able to determine that this man is dr okoye one of the two candidates that lost to kimba and was imprisoned for it it turns out that miss dexter is one of kimba's mistresses which is probably why they picked him up and beat him mercilessly apparently it's only been one day since they collected him <laughs> i assumed this was like weeks later no no he's just had a very hard day before he is removed from his cell Okoye slips Jamie a handful of painkillers. They march Jamie blindfolded to a truck in chains, and as he's being released, he is greeted at the airport by the documentary crew, asking why he was arrested and how he was treated in jail. He doesn't answer his friend from the night before, but when he gets close enough, the guy hands off a small 35mm film canister, and Jamie pockets the gift. Halfway through the airport, his jeep driver hands him back his passport. You can't leave Zangaru without your passport. Asshole. And then starts so laughing. Is that to prove that he spoke English the whole time? Yeah. And was just being a dick? Yeah. Yeah. And also, he was he's wearing a Kimba t-shirt. <laughs> like, he, he stopped by the gift shop on the way there. Yeah, just to show his support for the guy that beat the crap out of him. 
He flies out of the country, and we cut to him seeing a doctor in the States. Apparently, he made up some story about getting hurt in Paris to cover for Zangaro. I didn't catch that at all. I thought he was like, he went from Zangaro to Paris and then here, and it's just been weeks, and this guy's like, why didn't you get checked out sooner? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Looking at his files, his doctor is flabbergasted by the damage report to this human body. The man who paid him to go to Zangaro shows up at his apartment, and he hands off his report immediately and demands the second half of the payment. The man is too impatient to read the report, so Jamie is essentially forced to recite it. He says there's no chance of a coup. He don't trust his own army. Rations of bullets. The man says that the money people don't want to do business with a crazy person, and that it might be necessary to replace him. In other words, to perform a coup on the person that he just determined is not cooable. <laughs> cooable. The man asks if that would be possible and what Jamie would require to make that happen. Jamie is obviously not eager to go back to the country where he was just beaten and imprisoned. The money man, Dean pitches this as an opportunity for revenge. Would $100,000 cure cold feet? You got me mixed up with somebody else. Come on! I mean, that is ten times what he was paid for the reconnaissance, but also doesn't seem like enough. No, it's like, I'm going to give you ten dollars to take a picture of that person okay here i'll take a picture i'll give you one hundred dollars to murder them yeah what <laughs> nope. no jamie kicks Endine out of his apartment later he makes what we used to call a long distance phone call to his ex-wife but he hangs up without saying anything when she answers he gets in his car and he drives for a long time and then calls her again but this time he bothers to speak he tells her that he's nearby and he wants to see her and her father in the next room can tell that it's someone important on the phone she agrees to meet up with him when his ex-wife, Jesse, admits to her father who was on the phone, he advises her against meeting up with Jamie. I know it. He hasn't changed. He's the same irresponsible bastard you divorced. I didn't divorce him. You did. Was this confusing at all for you that yeah, Jesse and Jamie Jessie are the Jamie. characters? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was terribly confusing. Was Where like, am, am I? Am I married to my sister? <laughs> Is my sister Christopher Walken? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds great. What if she was played by Christopher Walken? Great. In the in the in the movie of my life, please cast Jamie as Christopher Walken. Or, or Christopher Walken as Jamie. Sorry, that's that's what I meant. I like the other one though. <laughs> <laughs> this is a scene where you're watching a Christopher Walken movie, but it's just your it's sister. Just Jamie doing she's, a terrible Christopher Walken impression. She's walking through. <laughs> what? Her dad throws a pile of kitchen crap to the floor. And we cut right to Jesse meeting up with Jamie, and they sit down to a meal together at a nearby diner. I, I did like the old-fashioned like ice cube make, like a oh yeah, like ice cube trays where it has like the actual lever that you yeah. lift up. I was like, oh man, that's sweet. Glad we got rid of those. Jamie invites Jesse to move west with him and live a simple life in the mountains. He tells her that he wants to go now and that he has all the money that they'd need to get started. I don't know if that's saved up from previous jobs or if he's going to use the first half payment. $15,000 is all we need. <laughs> I got a great job set up once I get to Montana of shooting people who are on the wrong piece of land. <laughs> yeah. I mean, essentially, that's what she says. She's like, yeah. oh, you're just going to be like a mercenary in, in, the, in this country now? I feel like these family-related scenes between her and him go on for way too long because they have no bearing on the rest of the film. Right. Yeah. I, and, and she seemed so eager to meet him. And I was like, oh, did... Did her father force her to get divorced from him? That's that's what that conversation felt like. But yeah. now now it seems like, no, she didn't want to be in this right. relationship yeah. either. But they have sex here while they still like each other. And then very quickly after that, 
she starts a fight about how he's a mercenary and she doesn't appreciate his lifestyle of killing people for money. He kisses her to shut her up and then repeats his offer of moving away, but later that night she dresses and leaves, offering Jamie a final goodbye. Jamie rushes back to his apartment and puts in a call to his friend Endine. He's trying to get a team together to go and do a coup on Kimba. The first guy, Terry, who sold him the camera, is not available because he's married with children and coincidentally <laughs> played by Ed O'Neill from Married with Children. As they walk away from Terry's auto shop, another recruit, Drew, asks, do you believe that shit Terry gave you about his sister? So maybe he isn't married with children? He just thinks he has to take care of his sister and her kids? But we didn't really hear the entire conversation. But at first he says, I got to get her and the kids off my back. And so you think that he's talking about his wife, and then when they're walking away, he's like, it's not, it's not your wife, it's your sister, dude. That's not an excuse to not come with us. Drew's pissed off, and calls him a chicken because Drew has a much better excuse in the form of a pregnant girlfriend, but he actually sees that as a reason to leave, not a reason to stay. Because he doesn't want to see her get fat. Yeah. You want to stay home too? No. Watching her get fat is going to be nauseating. Back in his apartment, Jamie is on the phone with the money people negotiating their terms. He wants $100,000 insurance per member of the team, and he gives them addresses to send money to in the event that anybody doesn't make it back. They ask for his beneficiaries, and he turns to the street kid watching TV in his apartment and says, hey, what's your name? <laughs> I like that he didn't even know the kid's name. Yeah. And also, the kid has no speaking parts. <laughs> right. He doesn't say a single line because he's not SAG. We see four members of the team meeting in a London apartment. At least three of these men have girls' names. Jamie, Drew, and Michelle. Jamie litters the table with recon photos of the location they're striking against. These are the photos that the documentarian handed off at the airport. That man's name is North, and we'll see more of him later. The plan is to take the capital and hold it until they can fly in the newly installed president from the border. They also have a guy training fighters named Ginger, which makes four lady-sounding names for this crew. <laughs> and I'm not even sure what the other guy's name is. It might be a running gag. Uh, you mean the, the Paul Freeman character? Yeah, we'll get to uh, it. Okay. Drew pops out for lunch, and a man in the lobby pretends to be on the phone while taking notes about their comings and goings from the hotel. The last guy's name is Derek, so that ruins the streak. Yeah. Is that Bo Derek? <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> All these guys have brains full of mercenary Rolodexes, so they're able to plug random people for every job they'll need along the way. It's a very well-oiled military machine. They consider meeting a man named Boucher about ammunition and joke about sending Derek to see him, even though they have an unpleasant history. I cut his fucking throat once. <laughs> <laughs> they coordinate getaway vehicles and end-user certificates and other things I didn't quite understand. In case you were unaware, as I was, an end-user certificate is basically an official promise that these weapons and ammo aren't being purchased for resale, that they intend to use them themselves. Michelle is in charge of collecting the gun order from Boucher, and while he does, we can see the massive scar on his neck from Derek's aforementioned attack. Yeah, I don't know if there was supposed to be subs for these uh, I, yeah, I didn't French have scenes, because there's a, there's a couple of scenes where he's being questioned and speaking in French. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, I could just do without them, I mean, because it's clear what they're talking about. Right. But, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know for sure what they said. We see Derek negotiating a price for ammunition, the first seller is jerking him around on the price, and he threatens to take his business elsewhere. The man calls his bluff, and Derek pretends to walk, Au revoir. but never leaves the office. Shall we try again? We see barrels being opened with blowtorches for storage. Walking down the sidewalk, someone starts calling after Jamie by the name Keith Brown. It's North from Zangaro. That's the documentarian. 
He asks if the photographs he sent were helpful. They stop for a drink together, and North informs Jamie that Kimba's gotten much worse and more paranoid since he left. He found one of his guards dead in the river with a broken neck, and since then he's been doing public executions and kicked the documentarians out of the country. Now, am I to understand that this is the guy that he beat up and I killed? believe so, okay. yes. And see, until this moment, I thought the reason that they picked him up in the hotel was because... He this... beat up the guard, and the guard said that he did it? yeah. But no, he killed that guard because he knows how to cover his tracks. They literally just picked him up because he was seen walking around town with Miss Dexter and taking pictures of stuff. And so they went through all of his things. And and to me, that's really on Dexter. Miss Dexter. Yeah. She should have known better. Well, I think she was told to do this, though. Right. And she was upset when he was taking the picture. But who told her to do it? Kimba? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. But then that's like looped logic. Like... I think that no, they were they, suspicious of this guy from yeah, the beginning. Somebody, oh, okay. somebody sent a, a fake tour guide for him to go watch birds. So. And somebody also sent military to go test his bird knowledge in the bar. Like, No, oh, well, I get that. But but I thought that this was like a, a misunderstanding that he was that he didn't no, I, know she was a mistress. I think they were suspicious and they sent a whole bunch of people, including her, to keep an eye on him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It turns out the documentary was a failure because nobody would go on the record for anything. North makes multiple hints that he would like to join the team or learn more about what Jamie's doing, but he pushes back hard. We see the phone man from the hotel lobby listening again from across the bar, and it seems like he's a member of North's team. He's at least listening to everything North does. Jamie speaks with an arms dealer about the XM-18 grenade launcher, which is a real weapon developed in 1935 by Charles Manville called the Manville gun. No, you put the right mix in this thing and its killing potential is fantastic. Your operation is an assault, I suspect. The XM-18 is effective up to 400 meters. If you load it in a well-thought-out sequence, it's devastating. For instance, first you use two rounds flares, then a couple gas, then you improvise with the rest. Fragmentation, grenades, tactical, anti-tank, anti-personnel. It's what we in the business call a mixed fruit pudding. What would you say is the rate of fire? 18 rounds in five seconds. It's the ultimate in killing technology. It's light, accurate, and mobile. I was so sure that this was a made-up gun because nope. it sounds insane. Yeah. yeah. But it's a real thing, and it looks real badass. Yeah, yeah. It's but, like a it's like a truncated Tommy gun for mm-hmm. grenades. But you can like it's like mixed. You can put different kinds of bullets in it, and yeah. it yeah. all work. And hopefully keep track of keep keep your count uh, yeah. as you're as you're firing. But it takes just. I as just l- remember the seventeenth one is a blank <laughs> to scare somebody with. Oops, I'm so sorry. There's the eighteenth. Uh, it just takes way too long to reload. Yeah, it's, it's like. It's like having one of those Nerf Tommy guns. Right. Like, Aha, this was so much fun. Now I have to spend 15 <laughs> minutes <laughs> going around the house and picking up all these darts because you reuse the, the ammunition. That's not true. Jamie notices his tail north watching the building from across the street, but here we don't see the guy that's following north around. We cut across town where Derek is negotiating a boat rental, including the crew, but the owner doesn't seem super excited about how shady this all sounds. Jamie tells Drew that he has to meet with the new president they're installing, and while he does that, Drew should go scare the fuck out of North so he stops following them, because he's liable to throw their whole plot to the nightly news. Michelle is in an auto shop continuing to load barrels full of guns and weld them shut. He doesn't realize until they're fully loaded that they're too heavy for him to move by himself. I loved that moment. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, it's so human to be like, ah, God, fuck, 
<laughs> Drew's brilliant plan to scare North is to throw him in front of a car. <laughs> no, no, I know, I, but this is this is what I thought was happening at the beginning. <laughs> it's pretty scary, though. Yeah, he's like, "Hey, why don't you come with me?" Oh my God, no, a car! It shoves him in front of the car, but uh, the car it seems like isn't trying to avoid him so much as it's trying to completely run him over and the car hits him and just goes right over the top of him crushing him to death the guy driving the car tries to flee the scene and collides with another car just down the road and then drew yanks out the bloody driver and it's the guy who was in the lobby watching north before and then in the bar later watching north talk to but i was super confused by this because i was like wait he's working for them because I thought he was saving his buddy from this car crash. And I'm like, wait, did he just go rogue on his own and decide that I'm going to ignore Jamie and just kill this guy because he's too much of a risk? And so, like, they teamed up to to kill him on purpose because mm-hmm. he drags him out like he's saving him. Yeah. And then, then that, I thought that or I thought, is this guy North's assistant and was literally just driving by and then drew pushed him in front of his his own guy's car to kill him and the guy was trying to avoid him when he accidentally ran him over and then when he tried to leave he crashed um but none of these are the truth and we'll get to the truth a little bit later but drew yanks this guy out and he's just saying taxi taxi we need to get this man to a hospital the newly selected president seku bobi is the other candidate that lost to kimba in the recent election he is a former military partner of kimba's who was exiled immediately upon his rise to power his best 24 soldiers are at Jamie's disposal. And Dean, the money man, asks about the strike plan. Why don't you brief us on your strike plan? You coming along? He tells them only what they need to know. Exactly where and when to install Bobby to power, offending them both and then leaving. Bobby tells Jamie that he should be nice to the future president, and Jamie basically says, fuck off. I got all the friends I can handle right now. Somehow, Bobby doesn't realize how powerful Jamie is, and that Bobby is just as replaceable as Kimba. Jamie refuses Bobby's soldiers and leaves. Michelle pulls up to a checkpoint, and they move to inspect the car and his barrels before allowing him to pass. Again, we don't understand the language being spoken here, but yeah. you can gather this much from watching it. They open the caps on the barrels and touch the liquid inside, and then they knock on some of the lids to confirm they're all equally full. But uh, it seems like they're asking him when one of the barrels sounds wrong, and then they notice that it's leaking in the car. So they're like, okay, well, that's why it sounds different, because this one's actually leaking. So my question here was, was he smart enough to know that they would sound different and purposely put leakage on the ground I would guess, yes. to account for mm-hmm. it? He seemed pretty sweaty, because he even pulls a gun. Yeah. Like, he pulls his gun and Just in case it. it's not going to go the way yeah. he planned it. But they let him through. We cut to the back room of some building where Drew and Jamie have the bloody driver that killed North captive. Turns out I totally misunderstood that last scene and Drew was literally just going to talk to the guy when a third party made an attempt on North's life. A uh, successful well, uh, attempt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jamie takes a big glass shard out of a window frame and puts it in the man's <sighs> mouth and <laughs> then starts slapping him hard oh across God. the face. That was rough. Uh, it, it, that's one of the worst things like that you can do. It's That's a button for me. Yeah. It's like that is a button that's being pressed. There, there's a scene in the movie Oculus where the girl's hallucinating, she thinks she's biting into an apple when it cuts in the real the real scene is she's bit into a light bulb. Yeah. And she's like, like Oh god stuff. I was like, No <laughs> I, I do not like this. That reminds me of that clone high episode where uh Abe Lincoln keeps getting his mouth cut open. <laughs> first <laughs> first they invented the Nork, 
which is like a knife and a fork together but it just slices open the flap at the end of his mouth (laughs) it's just like as he's talking it's like slapping at his face (laughs) and then later on they're working cleaning dishes in the back of napoleon's restaurant and he drops a glass and then napoleon comes in and he says here we eat our mistakes and he's like i dropped a glass (laughs) (laughs) so then you see him slowly closing his mouth around the glass until his shard just pokes out of his cheek (laughs) and then the last time he uh somebody made like pigs in a blanket but put razor blades in them at a holiday party and he eats one of them and he goes why does my mouth keep getting cut open (laughs) that show is amazing it's really wonderful but yeah that's happening to this guy basically he's getting norked and uh and they ask him who he worked for and it turns out that the guy is keeping an eye on their operation for Endine, but he's just doing a very sloppy job of it. And he killed North because he's a reporter and he was too close to their plot and might have turned something into the news already. We cut to a fancy dinner party being hosted by Endine. The future president is throwing his weight around the table and everyone seems very impressed with him. But two women are flirting with him at the same time. Yeah. One of them is Victoria Tennant. Yeah. I was like, we uh, just had you. Yeah. And and the, both the movies that we've had her in have like a huge amount of Raiders of the Lost Ark cast members. Yeah, that's true. Endine leaves to answer the phone and he tells someone that all of the coup paperwork has been filled out and the mineral rights are all uh, taken care of. <laughs> well, what I thought was really crazy about this scene was, first of all, he's saying that there's a bad connection. Yeah. So he's really loudly expository, yeah. <laughs> like giving this dialogue. And, and I'm like, okay, first of all, Booby could probably hear you because yeah. you're shouting this stuff. Well, I don't. I don't think any of this is a secret to Bobby. I think Bobby's well, the one who signed no, all the paperwork. He does in this phone call say, "Yeah, he has no clue. Like it's okay. Like they're they're they they basically had him sign over this because he's like, I don't even think he could spell the word platinum. Yeah, but what's the harm in saying that now if he's already signed the paperwork? I mean, I guess he's not in. They're not. They're not home free yet. But yeah, he's he's signed all the paperwork uh, giving mineral rights to them, uh, which is basically the reason for this coup, that they found yeah. platinum there and uh, Kimball wouldn't give them rights to mine all the platinum. So they said, hey, you want to be president and then we can mine the platinum? And he's like, sure, whatever, I don't care. But he notices something in the shadows of his office while he's speaking to this person on the phone and then he flips on a light to find the corpse of the bloody driver who had all that glass in his mouth sitting behind his desk, but he doesn't skip a beat in his phone call. Yeah. <laughs> and he just turns the light off again because it's unpleasant to look at. No, he's no idea what's at stake. I promise. I don't believe he can even spell platinum. Which is a dumb thing to say in a room that Jamie was clearly just in and might have bugged. Yeah, yeah, but you know, he's just shouting hyperbole. Yeah. Jamie goes to visit the munitions contact, and the shipment hasn't left Madrid. It won't be here in time, so the deal is off. Jamie wants to take the risk of using other stored ammunition that doesn't match their end-user certificate. Cancel the order. You want to give me my money back? Make the call. We cut right to ammo being loaded on a boat, so this guy must have folded to Jamie's demands, but it doesn't really pay off that they don't have the end-user agreement. Yeah, yeah. Do you agree? to the terms and conditions we got to read all the pages itunes the local officials give their coup ship a thorough inspection and jamie is able to satisfactorily answer all the questions with the help of the rented boat captain once they're on their way jamie thanks the captain for his help with the officials out at sea the men unload their firepower to test it 
into the ocean. Uh, they're shooting bullets and rockets, and they're throwing empty barrels overboard to shoot at. The XM-18, which looks super badass, and Drew uses it to vaporize a barrel with, with the ultimate in killing technology. And, and I love the safety on it, where it's like this big bolt that's yeah. in the back that you have to like loosen and then retract into the, into the unit. The captain is a little terrified by all these weapons. Whose water are you going to fight? As another boat passes them in the night, everyone cocks their automatic weapons, and the boat docks with theirs to form their invading force. We get a whole sequence of these men being loaded onto the ship and trained in firearms, but it turns out they're already perfectly well-trained in firearms. Yeah. What I loved especially about this scene is that Paul Freeman and the actor playing Ginger will once again be standing on the deck of a ship very close together. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see that later this year. They talk their army through the attack schedule and everyone seems jazzed to murder Kimba. We see men approaching a helicopter at dawn and this is probably the new president getting ready to uh, to fly to his new palace where he's going to be taking over. We're hearing these little trills in the score that keep reminding me of Flight of the Valkyries and I don't think it's an accident. <laughs> It just sounds like that. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. We see the quiet Zangaro garrison at night, and then we cut to the invading team on inflatable motorboats. They hit the beach and they move past a lighthouse. Jamie points a night vision telescope at a guard shack and nods to a man with a huge silencer. They begin to cross a bridge on foot toward guards, and Jamie's friend here is able to converse in their language until they're close enough to shoot both men. Three additional men are also taken out relatively silently. The whole invading force moves through town silently, and we cut back to the helicopter inbound, delivering the president. They reach a drawbridge, which is rotated parallel to the waterway. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, this bridge was awesome. You didn't tell them we were coming? I like that line. It's like, yeah, no, I didn't tell them that. Jamie orders the pair of men to make their way across the water to rotate the bridge, and luckily for them, it's a very silent process. I was worried <laughs> it was going to be like, bam, bam. <laughs> <laughs> we spend a while silently infiltrating town. Four guard positions are neutralized. One CQ. Two CQ. Three CQ. Four CQ. It's time to start making noise. Jamie whips out the XM-18 and starts lighting up the whole garrison. I can't tell who's on which team in this fight except for a sprinkling of white dudes, but I know that the coup folks seem to be doing well. Yeah, uh, Jamie in his speech was very adamant that, that they need to do most of the fighting. Right. Like, because they need to take back their country. Yeah. But they just unload on this garrison. Yeah. Like, it's it's crazy the amount that they just, just unleash hell on this thing. And it's smoking and exploding so much that it gets to the point where it's like, how can you even tell what you're shooting at anymore? Mm, it's such yeah. a mess. Doesn't matter. Just keep shooting. Yeah. Suddenly there's a tank inbound, and Drew starts firing on it with the XM-18 until another of their mercs sits next to him with a rocket launcher and puts one right through the tank grill and just insta-kills it, like the whole thing just erupts and collapses into itself. The team continues to disintegrate guard positions as they move toward the central building and eventually make a run for it. Jamie takes down the main gate, and the men storm inside. Drew storms into a building shouting, but when he finds a woman and children inside, he turns to leave, and the woman takes this opportunity to plug him twice in the back. Jamie kicks his way into the building's dining hall, where he finds Kimba loading a briefcase with as much cash as he can. Well, before that, he encounters a guy in the hallway, his driver. Right, yeah. <laughs> and blasts him away. Um, but so he goes in here and he finds Kimba, and he's just trying to load up this briefcase. He doesn't notice Jamie is in the room with him for a minute. Mm -hmm. But uh, he tries to hand over fat stacks of cash to Jamie, 
who just shoots him dead here, but weirdly doesn't sit down and continue packing the briefcase. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting to me that it's like, this guy had more money on this table than you guys are getting paid for this whole mission. Right. So you're not doing it for the money, really. Well, it's, you know, Zindargo. Zingaro dollars? Yeah. Kimba bucks? Yeah. Are you you (laughs) suggesting this is like a Zimbabwe inflationary situation? Well, I don't know that, especially after a coup, that their money is going to be worth anything. Like, it's going to have, you know, the country's going to be- It just has Kimba's face on it. Financially Mm -hmm. unstable, so like- you might it's not it might not be worth that much yeah what if they replaced the guy with simba and this whole thing was just a metaphor for <laughs> the lion king the lion king tune in next week when we're gonna be, no where was i well the the next action i wasn't really oh, yeah. quite sure what jamie was up to because he kicks the door into the bedroom and then just unloads bullets into the bed yeah and and i don't know if he, it was because he was expecting somebody to be in it or or what yeah i i don't really understand what he's doing here either but yeah he he kicks his way into i guess like the royal bedroom mm-hmm. um and i think he knows that miss dexter's gonna be there right well because he he sees her in a reflection in the mirror and shoots the mirror yeah but he's not dumb like yeah. he knows that she's she's not framed on the wall in a small glass cage <laughs> um so i i got the impression that he was doing this because he was angry that he found out that she was the mistress of kimbo when he was interested in her even if it was so vaguely. Right. But he shoots up the mirror and then he shoots up the bed. Um, and then he just turns around to leave. He doesn't even say anything to her. Maybe it's not about the money. Maybe it's the pride of a job well done that makes a coup worthwhile. Maybe the real treasure is the people we obliterate along the way. He turns and leaves her standing there to meet with the helicopter landing in the garrison courtyard. All the men are already cracking into champagne. And Dean and Bobby step out of the helicopter and they slowly make their way to the presidential office within the building where Jamie is waiting. But he's been waiting too long. He gave them very specific instructions. You're late! Fucking President Okoye is sitting behind <laughs> the president's desk and announces, Colonel Bobby, you are under arrest. And Dean is completely dumbfounded and to be fair, so was I. <laughs> Shannon, get him out of here. This whole country's bought and paid for. He takes a gun from the desk. You're gonna have to buy it all over again. And shoots Bobby in the heart. (laughs) Turns and walks out. He climbs into a jeep with his men and Drew's body, and they drive out of the garrison and through the empty town. So the end. You weren't expecting that? No. Oh, when he (laughs) when he came across the doctor in the prison, I was like, ah, this is gonna come back. Well, but but did he put the doctor in power because they took too long, and he was like, fuck these guys. Or was his plan always to put the doctor in power? Well, I, I feel like, at the very least, after they had to kill that the driver, I think he was pissed off at Endine already. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and I feel like maybe he also figured out that like he was being lied to about all this stuff, and... or that the person that they were installing wasn't any better than the previous right. guy. Totally. Like the like when he specifically said, "I'm doing this to get rich." Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 But yeah, no, I I was fully expecting him to to put the doctor in charge. But like, yeah, the I was a little thrown by the year late line because I was like, oh, did he, did did this guy just do it himself? He's like, if you were here on time, this guy would have been. Sorry, there was a power vacuum. Yeah, (laughs) and uh, power abhors a vacuum. Yeah, yeah. I I think it's nature abhors a vacuum. (laughs) That's why I named my dog Nature. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but no, I think I think he definitely. 
Because, I mean, he could just as easily, you know, given Bobby the, the, the presidency, right. you know, like the doctor didn't have a bunch of troops on his side at this point. So he, he clearly had Jamie on his side. Yeah. But yeah, because you think about it, like if he didn't kill Endine, he only killed Bobby. Yeah. So what is what is the scene after he leaves in the Jeep? Does he care what the scene is after he leaves in the Jeep? Or does Endine turn to the, the nearest person who's from this region and say, here's a million dollars. Kill this Give guy. me this country. Like, yeah. yeah. Or does Endine not ever leave this country because... Because he goes right to jail. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Um, But uh, it's a little corny, but it's still kind of fun. Yeah. Um, It felt like something that would happen at the end of an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, not at the end of a Christopher Walken movie, <laughs> which was I weird. I liked it. Yeah. No, I liked it too, but it's it's basically like, you know, they they killed trump in the dining room and they were supposed to install biden in the morning and then fucking bernie sanders is sitting <laughs> like, at the desk. Yeah. it's like what happened <laughs> awesome <laughs> out of nowhere um but yeah they uh they, they just fucking killed everybody that's the only part that i feel like doesn't make sense is if if you put okoye in then either christopher walken has to go to jail for killing the general in his office or it should have been a situation where the general tried to kill okoye right there and walken killed him to protect the president sure because otherwise it's like oh well i'm also comfortable with you killing people so that i can be in power yeah yeah uh i i would have also have liked for him bobby to have come in and then christopher sit down at the chair and then christopher walken kills him there yeah and then brings in dr okoye yeah because what a great opportunity is like i've always wanted to kill two presidents in one day (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah it's good stuff um our director here was john irvin um he this was as i said this was his feature film directorial debut uh he also directs ghost story this year 1981 and later raw deal and hamburger hill writer gary devore wrote back roads later this year and also raw deal and running scared the 86 version okay um, <laughs> yeah. yeah other writer george that, that, that's the, the good one yeah and... one of the good ones i guess you said the 2006 one's okay Oh, the Paul Walker one? Yeah. It's it's crazy. Is it six? I think it's 2006. Yeah. It's it's really good. It, it is really good because it's so bonkers. Yeah. George Malko, the other writer, I didn't recognize much on his IMDb. Frederick Forsyth also wrote the books that were adapted into The Day of the Jackal and The Odessa File. Cinematographer Jack Cardiff, lots of stuff. Um, yeah, that even sounds familiar. Yeah. Black Narcissus, The African Queen, War and Peace, uh, The Awakening last year, and later he'll do First Blood Part Two editor anthony gibbs uh he did tom jones juggernaut a bridge too far dune and reindeer games no reindeer games <laughs> christopher wow, walken what, a, what a, i hope that wasn't his last one. <laughs> oh, maybe it was christopher walken played jamie shannon he was in deer hunter before this he was in dead zone view to a kill batman returns true romance the prophecy films lots of snl Fatboy slim's video for weapon of choice good uh, stuff yeah and a frequent you know of uh tony scott right when tony scott was making movies tom berenger was drew he's sergeant barnes in platoon he's sam in the big chill he's browning in inception i always think of either the substitute or sniper films for him yeah yeah colin blakely was north he was vasily in nijinsky last year he was hardman in murder on the orient express and matthew in a man for all seasons paul freeman was derek He's famously Ivan Ooze in the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie. Yeah. <laughs> he was a reverend shooter in Hot Fuzz, and we'll see him soon as 
Belloc and mm-hmm. Raiders. Thank- yes. <laughs> Joe Beth Williams was Jessie. We had her in Stir Crazy last year. She's also in Kramer vs. Kramer, The Big Chill with Tom Berenger, and the Poltergeist movies. Pedro Armendariz Jr. was the captain. I think that's the boat captain? No. Uh, that's the only... Uh, no, I think he was one of the the military captains. Either I would say he's either the captain of the guard when they're taking off in the plane at the beginning, or when they're when they're docking when they're on the ship and Christopher Walken wants to get on the on board and he's being questioned. Yeah, I think that's who it is. These are the only guys who fit that description. Yeah, I think he's got a big old mustache. I think it's I think it's the guy that was checking them at the boat when when the captain on the boat is helping him out. Uh, he played President Lopez in License to Kill. He's El Presidente in Once Upon a Time in Mexico, and he's Don Pedro in The Mask of Zorro. Ed O'Neill was Terry. He's Mr. Litwack in Wreck-It Ralph. He's Hank the Septopus in Finding Dory. We saw him last year as a detective very briefly in Cruising. He's Dutch Dooley in Dutch, but he's probably best known as Al Bundy on Married with Children. Ernest Graves played Warner. This was his final credit, and he was Zeus in Hercules in New York. <laughs> Shane Rimmer played Dr. Oaks. He was Commander Carter in The Spy Who Loved Me. He's also the voice of Louis Watterson on The Amazing World of Gumball, which my kids have been watching nonstop lately. Bruce McLean played Shop Manager. This was his second and last acting credit after Detective Number 3 in The First Deadly Sin last year. So we've covered both of his films. George Harris played Colonel Bobby. He's Katanga in Raiders. He's Kingsley Shacklebolt in the Harry Potter universe. We saw him last as the Prince of Ardentia in Flash Gordon, who was killed by Ming the Merciless in the throne room after making an attempt on Ming's life. Death to Ming! David Schofield played Endine's Man. That's the driver, I assume. Yeah, the Uh, the, the assassin or whoever. He was a dart player in American Werewolf in London, so we'll see him later this season for that. Uh, he's also Mercer in Pirates of the Caribbean and Falco in Gladiator. Yeah, I, I recognized him more from his later characters. Yeah. Uh, he's got a very, very mean look to him. Yep. He's probably one of those angry British people in the Pirates movies. Terrence Rigby played Hackett. He was Gerald Fletcher in Get Carter and General Bukharin in Tomorrow Never Dies. Christopher Malcolm played Baker. He's Kirk Matunas in Highlander. He's Rebel Force Zev in Empire Strikes Back. And he plays the dad of the baby in Labyrinth. He's also Adina Monsoon's gay ex-husband on Absolutely Fabulous. And he'll be back later this year for Shock Treatment, Ragtime, and Reds. Jack Lenore played Boucher. He'll be back in Victory later in 1981. And he died in 1981. I I couldn't figure out a cause for his death, but... Uh, the guy with the big scar on his neck he passed away the year this movie came out martin lasalle played the customs officer we just had him as aparicio in cabo blanco which might be the customs officer in that movie yeah (laughs) he'll be back for missing and sorceress in 1982 hugh quarshi played zangaran officer he was captain panaka in the phantom menace he's sunda castagir in highlander Detective Joyce in Nightbreed, and most importantly, he was Inspector Rhodes in MacGyver, Lost Treasure of Atlantis. Eddie Togo played Ginger. He was Chocolate Moose in Top Secret. He's Presuming Ed in With Nail and I, and he's Messenger Pirate in Raiders. Yeah, he he and uh, Katanga. Yeah, he, he's Katanga's man. He's his first mate. So it's just it's just funny that him, Paul Freeman, all, all three of them are both are all in the same 
they don't have a scene together in this movie uh but they're all three on board that deck of that ship at the end yeah they're just piled up kenny ireland was on the film crew that's uh not the angry guy or jim broadbent <laughs> that's the third guy that was on the crew uh he plays ben landless who is an american newspaper magnate in the original house of cards series jim broadbent was on the film crew He's the TV show host in Time Bandits later this season and a station porter in Breaking Glass, which I'll get to for a belated minisode this year. He's probably best known as Harold Zidler in Moulin Rouge, Professor Slughorn in Harry Potter, or Dean Charles Stanforth in Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Another Indiana Jones alum. <laughs> Victoria Tennant was at the dinner party. We just saw her as Lady Carnarvon in Sphinx three episodes back, and she's in L.A. Story and Flowers in the Attic. We'll see her next in something called Inseminoid, <laughs> which, oh, features, which features aliens who impregnate women, sending them into murderous rages. <laughs> oh, my wow. God. So uh, when is that coming up? I think that's 82 or 83. I want to hear the guy who wrote that, like, talk about the inspiration. Yeah. <laughs> I don't because... know what happened. I think I'm an alien. <laughs> my wife hates me. <laughs> Probably because I got her pregnant <laughs> with my alien sperm. I have an idea for a movie. <laughs> Perfect. Divorced. <laughs> Divorce the movie. Divorce annoyed. Now, Divorce the movie is called Possession with Sam Neill. Whew. Ooh, yeah. I like that one. Yeah. But it's basically a movie about divorce. It's the realest movie there is about divorce. <laughs> From this- your experience. Yes. <laughs> my limited experience of two divorces that i haven't mentioned um this movie is fun um i thought it was going to be smarter than it was because for the first two thirds it's it seems very smart they're planning things and they're very accurate and precise and they know what they're doing and then the last third of it is just a dumb like scene at the end of command yeah it's it's the it's the the octagon or yeah um i I would have liked, I feel like they blew all their production value on that opening scene because it would have been great to have like, they get through the town with no resistance. Yeah. Yeah, There's literally nobody in the town. Yeah. And even when he's leaving the next day, he's driving down the middle of the street. There's no cars. There's no pedestrians. There's nobody here. I mean, but I think it's kind of the point that they can take over a country like this because really- Because everyone's terrified to go outside. It's just the people in the garrison that are being paid by the president. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know that there is a curfew. That's what that alarm is that goes yeah. off at night. Yeah, it's, it's still like there's yeah. no guards. Yeah. So, uh, but it just seems like that they had absolutely no resistance. I was like, okay, because because then you trim that up because right, it, it took too it, long for them to get into the. It was yeah. compound real slow that whole section, and a lot of the just shooting of the building over and over again. Like even I, I had no problems with that. Yeah. Honestly, I was, just I, that. I was a little disappointed in the XM18 though. Because when he starts using it, like some of some of it just looks like pew pew pew, yeah. and they're just like bouncing off of the door that he's shooting them at. And it's like, what are you, what button is that? Stop pushing that button. <laughs> oh, those, those are the beanbag rounds. God oh, damn yeah. it! <laughs> this Why is did great. we buy any of these? So we could play cornhole after the fight. <laughs> no, set it up. It goes four hundred meters. <laughs> Keep going. I, I really enjoyed this movie. And I did too. I didn't think I was going to because, like I always say, I hate war movies. Yeah. But I enjoyed this one. Yeah. Um, I, there was a lot of stuff that I could have done without, though. I yes. thought it was really long, so it needed to be trimmed. 
I didn't like that the family stuff really never came back into play. We could have lost all of that and had no consequences to this movie. Um, and then I kept, I kept waiting for them to, like, I thought they were setting things up and then they never really came back. Like the, the drunken boat captain that was yeah. like, you know, you that, better that, be here. Yeah. You better be here. And then he, and then they never go back to the boat. And I'm like, what, what, what happened there? You know? And yeah, uh, I don't know. They, they just don't really, they, they, they didn't really tie up a lot of ends that they, they seemed to put into motion. During and there's the just a kid left in his apartment yeah. back <laughs> in New York. So, so what you're both are saying is you really want to see Michael Cimino's five hour version of this well, movie. I, I think that it would have been more cerebral if, if Cimino had done it. I think that that last scene especially would have been handled with a little bit more care yeah. because the change comes at you so abruptly and it's over instantly yeah. that you're just like, you barely you're you're in shock you know you're trying to put it together in your head like really like that's the end of this movie is that how this is going to end which i wanted like i didn't know that i wanted it until it happened but i was like oh okay so he's not the bad guy because i'd already accepted that the the point of this movie is that you're putting a different bad guy in charge and that this is totally pointless what you're doing you're not improving the world you're just making the thing that i didn't like was like we we spent this whole film building up Jamie like this guy who all he cares about is just being a mercenary for whatever reason Mm -hmm. like we don't ever really get a good motivation maybe he's just a psychopath I don't know but then he does this act at the end and I'm not clear is it supposed to be a redemption is it redemption what is his motivation to to do the right thing now is it revenge against the other guys that he doesn't like I like I'm not entirely sure yeah what his arc is supposed to be I I would have liked for it to come back around more to Terry's character of that Terry got a family and he doesn't want to do this anymore. Right. And, and he's trying to act tough about it. It's like, Oh, I got, you got to get him off my back first, blah, blah, blah. But, and it would have been nice because Christopher Walken like seems to like want to rekindle his, with his ex and like, maybe he wants to get out of this, but ultimately it seems like he has nothing to get out of it to go to. Yeah. And this is all that he has. Um, and, and that's kind of where that's where we leave it. Yeah. Like, like is he doing this for her? And then what does it work? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It it's two hours long. You 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 cut out the ex wife stuff, and you cut out the the kid that he keeps hanging out with because that doesn't go anywhere yeah. either. Mm-hmm. Um, or you make it longer and you flesh those things out. Yeah. Like uh, I was thinking, it'd be neat if you had like there's some insert when. Um, Kimba's putting the stuff in the briefcase where you see the briefcase and it has some sort of unique marking on it. And then like back in New York, you see the kid talking to, uh, talking to Jamie and he's like, they're parting ways a little bit and he starts to walk away and the kid's like, Hey, you left your briefcase. And, and he just doesn't turn around. Like he just pretends like he can't hear the kid. And then you get a shot of the briefcase on the ground and it's the one that was in that room. You're like, Oh shit. Like he just gave that kid hundreds of thousands of worthless money. (laughs) Yeah. Ah, Kimba bucks. (laughs) Yeah, if it, if if that was Kim going bucks. to <laughs> if that was going to happen, that would have needed Kimba to be loading the briefcase with like gold bricks or something. Yeah, 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 that's true. Or, or heroin. Yeah, <laughs> this kid's like, oh my god, smashed. I'm gonna have a party for two hours. <laughs> a, li- <laughs> a lethal dose is the same as a lifetime supply. <laughs> that's good. Uh, 
Yeah, um, it's a thumbs up from me. It's the, yeah. the ending's a little corny, but I'm gonna give it a thumbs up because I liked it and I didn't see it coming. And if that didn't happen at the end, it was gonna be probably a much more disappointing movie. Yeah, I I think I knew that was coming. I enjoyed it anyways, and it's a thumbs up. The whole me. time you knew that was coming. When when he runs into the doctor in the prison, I was like. Well, but at the same time, I was like, okay, this is coming back. Okay, the boat guy's coming back. Okay, this, you know, like I kept I kept thinking that there was a lot more things that were coming back. And this was the only one that actually did. So to be fair, I was wrong at a lot of other things. <laughs> you, you were one in five. <laughs> when he was moving through the airport on his way out of the country the first time, the press that are shouting at him, one of the questions that he asks is, is it true that they've killed Dr. Okoye? And I took that at face value. I thought that meant that Okoye was dead. And he wasn't going to come back in the story because they killed him for helping this guy and getting him out of the country, even though they asked him to do it. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I didn't hear that part. <laughs> uh, it's, it is also a thumbs up for me. And this is one of those movies I'm going to reflect back on and go, I probably shouldn't have put this as high as I did. I think I'll feel that way later, too. But, but it's because... <laughs> I, I, it was such a palate cleanser of of everything After else. After a that, lot of nonsense, I was just like, "Oh God, thank you." They're shooting crap. They got a big old crazy gun. Christopher Walken, all these cool Indiana Jones actors. Uh, I just needed this. Yeah. All right, Richard. How high is it? It's my number two. All right. It's number. It's. I. I was. I was considering one, but I think now Scanners is just a, an excellent film. Yeah. Uh, but this is my number two. I would definitely watch this more than I would watch The Incredible Shrinking Woman. Yeah. Uh, and Incredible Shrinking Woman is up there only because it's just a technical marvel. Like, I think it's just really impressive in that yep, way. But absolutely. Uh, yeah, so Dogs of War is number two. All right. I uh, I had it at number two for a while. But then I was reflecting back about the two hours-ness and the stuff I would cut out. So I bumped it down to number three because I'd rather watch Fear No Evil because that movie is right. just silly and ridiculous and fun. So now I have, you know, it's Ghost Scanners, Fear No Evil, and Dogs of War. All right. Well, we have a two and a three, and I have it in fourth. Oh. Uh, so it's right under American Pop and just above Incredible Shrinking Woman. Uh, but for me, uh, the the third act is so sloppy compared to the rest of it that it Agreed. was it was pretty disappointing. And that the action scene, I wasn't getting anything out of it because I couldn't tell what was happening the whole time. And this was a good transfer. Yeah. Like, no, it's, like, it it's, looked beautiful. It wasn't because they yeah it wasn't because of the transfer it was because of the direction and that's part of why i think i was never confused what was going on in heaven's gate and i think that chimino would have smartened up this ending a little bit i mean it still would have ended with okoye as president yeah but it would have just been a little bit more poetic and smarter but as it stands it just feels a little bit like a dumb action movie suddenly at the end where it's been so thoughtful and precise the entire time um but yeah I think that's everything for The Dogs of War. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. You can find the button at the top of our .com and join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future. Also, search for Vintage Video Podcast on YouTube and subscribe to our new channel there. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Eyewitness, which IMDb describes like so. A janitor who claims he's seen a murder becomes romantically involved with the glamorous TV reporter covering the story. We leave you now with a trailer for Eyewitness.
every day in the United States, 50 people are murdered. Few of the killings are ever solved. Only the most sensational cases reach the 6 o'clock news. Long is an international no figure. Is the FBI being called in? When are you going to make a statement, Lieutenant? This was it. For TV newswoman Tony Sokoloff, this man is the key to a story that could make her a media superstar. What do you know about the murder of Mr. Long? Nothing. I just found out about it. Then why are we having this interview? Since you asked me, I'll tell you, I have had a crush on you for about two years. Look, I'm really busy, and uh, you don't seem to know anything. What if I did? I think you're right. He's hiding something, and I know just the girl to get it out of him. You were in the building when Long was killed, weren't you? Say I told you. What happens then? Never can tell. People, they say, are brought closer together by the secrets they share. It's dangerous. This kind of work you're doing. I'm a reporter. My story comes first. In pursuit of the truth, she must leave the primetime world and enter a life the camera never sees. Where reality is a realm of shadows. They said they wanted some information. Everybody wants something from somebody. What do you want from me? Anything you got. Secret motives. He knows who the killer is and he's taking advantage of you. He knows nothing. Double meanings. You're keeping something from me. A little. Uh, hello, Antonia. Let's get together. I'll tell you some things you want to know. I was there when it happened. Dual identities. Can you meet me tonight? Whatever that was, that's who killed Long. It was dark. I saw enough. Where family and friends can no longer be trusted. Frightened. Me too. Of both of you. Where even an eyewitness can be deceived. Where only one person knows the truth. And to keep from being news, he's prepared to kill. Please. Again. William Hurt. Sigourney Weaver. Christopher Plummer. Eyewitness. You're never more vulnerable than when you've seen too much.